Welcome to episode four of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Today's episode is all about the journey of self-acceptance. That took some real gain over. Mm -hmm. To be at the bottom, to feel like you literally are, to feel like you've got nothing, when actually you've got everything. (laughs) You know, to feel like that, it says it all, doesn't it? It's time to be your best version of you. No fluff, no nonsense, only practical ways for you to be your own extraordinary. We learn from the real stories of real people who've been there and survived the life challenges that we all face. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. Welcome to the rediscovery of me. I'm your host, Holly Hartley. Well, lovely people, here we are, episode four. Can you believe it? We're off the beach and afloat in the water. As ever, it's really great to have you here. I have been so incredibly humbled with the support that I've received to date. So an incredibly heartfelt thank you from me. If you haven't done so yet, please make sure that you subscribe and leave a review. And please make sure that you share on all your social media channels. So enough waffle. Let's get on with this week's show. So my guest on today's show is a chef, teacher and food consultant. Inspired at an early age by his mother and her love of spices, he sees culinary skills as important in the development and growth of young people. In fact, he sees food as a critical part of everyone's existence and believes that through food, we can feed not only our bodies, but also our minds and our souls. Today, he's a successful entrepreneur running his own food, education and training business, but things haven't always been this easy. As a child, he struggled at school and in later life he became critically ill. His style is energetic and fun and he's always looking for ways to challenge himself and others around him. I have, he says, a creative drive to do things differently. He is from Feast with Friends, Chris Cohen. Hi Chris. Hello there. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for coming on and for agreeing to be one of my very, very first podcast guests. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And here we are on location in beautiful Buxton. Amazing, yeah. So for listeners, if they hear the odd knock or bang or person in the background or even heavy machinery, that explains why, as they're doing up the crescent next door. So I believe you're kind of from this neck of the woods as well. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I also believe this place is one of the first, if not the first, formal hotels. Ever? So yeah, it's almost like the place where hospitality started. Yeah. We are at the cradle of uh, history as we speak. Absolutely. Well, talking of history, let's let's go back a little bit with you then. So, as I said in the introduction, you, you, I read that on your website that you have this drive to do things differently mm. and you love creativity. So tell me a little bit about what that means and what creativity means to you. Okay, so creativity is not the discipline. Mm-hmm. So it's not art. Mm-hmm. It's not designing. It's not those things that we often associate it with. It's more the thought process. There's a guy called Ken Robinson who does a lot of educational-based talks and not only that, but also about the structure of education. And he sees creativity as ideas with originality. I'd go one step further. I think context is everything Mm -hmm. in creativity. And almost, quite often people say things like, all things are done. We can't, you know, we, we can only repeat things. We can't find new ideas. That's 
quite true, but I think there's the missing something there. And I think often creativity exists in the, the crossover of context. To me, context is everything in creativity, whether that be history, geography, trends, people's experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, it's through taking in those things that really give you an opportunity to create some new ground. And that's what we often do with our dining experiences. So, and that's one of the things that really inspires you, that kind of freedom to create your own ideas. Yeah. I, I, I think as well often there's a real misunderstanding about, um, or a confusion, I should say, about creativity and being artistic. For mm. example, I never considered myself to be creative. But actually, when I thought about it and I'd done some reading around, I actually discovered, you know what, I might not be artistic, but I'm actually very, very creative because, like, as you've just said, it's about the creativity of thought processes. Absolutely. I had a really good conversation in a school recently and I asked the class, tell me who thinks they're not creative? Mm-hmm. And I'd say about a third of the class put the hand up without any hesitation. This class was year five. So, so how old are year five kids? N- nine and ten. Okay. And this really shows how we view creativity, how it's almost not accessible to all. Mm. And I thought that was really sad. Yeah. But I pursued it further and I, and I said to the, this young lad, I said, answer this if you feel comfortable, but why is it you feel like you're not creative? And straight away, without hesitation, he said, well, I can't draw. Yeah. I'm not really good at making things. Mm. And I said, well, I bet you on a daily basis you come up with creative ideas of how to get out of certain situations. You might might be things you say to your parents. And at this point, the, the teacher got on board. And she contributed, yeah, you know, it's that like all saying, sorry, miss, I haven't got my homework. The dog ate it. Mm. That's a really good example of creative thought, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it, and I mean, it's a bit passe, it's a bit, it's a bit sort of dated. It's not original in any way. And if, and I'm sure you're the same, if any child said that in a class, she'd be like, behave yourself. Absolutely no way. But it is a really good example of creative thought, you know. And it's interesting, actually, the way that, that that plays out in people's lives and the impact that that ability to be creative and have that kind of fluidity in thinking impacts on how successful people become. Yeah, I can see how I now work as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and I guess I'm becoming more and more comfortable with associating myself with that word. But yeah, creativity is massive. Thinking differently is massive because without that, you're not going to embrace those creative opportunities. Mm -hmm. And do you think that ability to think with agility and difference has been one of the things that's enabled you to be a success despite, you know, these really quite significant challenges that you face in your life? Yeah, I think that's what's kept my want to succeed alive. Mm -hmm. So from a much younger age where I didn't see a way forward, Mm -hmm. I think that creative brain was always telling me that there was a way forward and mm. there, w- there was success potential. Mm. So let, let's go back there. Let's, let's probe a little bit further there. I mean, when I was doing my preparation for the show, you provided me with some information and you spoke about this conflicting sense of ad- ambition and a desire to challenge what you can do. And actually these kinds of set thoughts that maybe you had from quite a young age about what you were actually capable of because mm. of some of the experiences that you had as a child. School was a big challenge for you. Absolutely, yeah. So massive. tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I, my memories are from a very young age, Uh, experiencing complete frustration at simple things like not being able to spell my name. Mm -hmm. So name cards on table, year, 
what is now year one, year two. I was one of the last in the class, if not the last, to have a big name card. My, my name card was Christopher. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they might as well stuck a few more names on there and just made it like, go all the way around the room. It was just like, how many letters am I going to have in my name? Compared to somebody called Ian. Mm-hmm. So from a, a young age, I wish I was, I'd been called Ian, simply because I could have probably spelt that much quicker. So being called Christopher was like a bit of kind of embodied those early years and the frustration personally not being able to spell and that realisation that maybe school was going to be a bit of a challenge. You, you later found out that you were in fact, that you are in fact dyslexic. Yeah. So we, what age were you diagnosed? Incidentally, not until after school. Right. As is so true with so many Yeah, people. so my mum always said it. Mm-hmm. You could argue whether that was a good thing or a, or a, you know, just another sort of challenge that I saw that I'd, you know, that I couldn't overcome at the time. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I started to think about becoming a teacher that I and I wanted to sort of improve my education that I then had a test. I think I must have been about maybe twenty-four. Wow. There was a bit of a probe done in secondary school, but there was never any follow-up from it. Mm-hmm. I remember sort of a teacher coming into the, the lesson, taking a book away. I thought, crikey, what have I done? I've done something wrong. As I often felt like I had done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And there was never anything said. And my mum said to me that night, oh, did you, you know, teacher say anything to you today about that test? Uh, I had absolutely no idea what she was on about. You know, And that was some kind of probe into whether I was dyslexic, but nothing ever came of it. But I think you know what really embodies my challenge with education was at a really young age being physically shaken on many occasions by a teacher in primary school, year one. So at the age of five, six? Yeah, so I'd put him in six because I was always the oldest in the year. Okay. Which I think was also detrimental because, uh, and having an older, older sister who, was, who is, is and was a very able learner. Mm-hmm. I think that was another thing that, that I saw as, oh, crikey, I want to be the oldest, you know? Yeah. <laughs> being the youngest, you've got an excuse, but I didn't have that excuse. So yeah, sort of being, having that sort of physical connection to that teacher and her sort of, her bearing her frustration on me in that way was, you know, was, has taken some getting over actually. And I'd forgotten about it till very, till the last couple of years. Wow. And it's something that really strangely inspires me now. It's an experience that makes me think despite all that, despite how difficult my early education was, now it's largely meaningless. Mm. You know, it's part of me, it's shaped me, but, all for the good. Mm. You know, it's not, those things don't have to define me or anybody. What was it you think about that experience that resurfaced over the last kind of couple of years? So, yeah, so from being ill. Mm -hmm. Which we'll come to in a minute. Yeah, uh, I think there was a lot of searching. I had a lot of therapy and I had had to, to, but regardless of whether I had to, I did think a lot about the past. Yeah. And from that pulled out some experiences, positive and maybe, you know, challenging for other reasons that have really led me to think about these things in a different way. Mm. The mind is a curious thing, isn't it? It's incredible. How things suddenly, from so long ago, you can suddenly yeah. unearth them. Yeah, absolutely. I think psychology is something that I've become more and more, I think I've always been interested in it, mm-hmm. especially as a teacher, but mm-hmm. even more so now mm-hmm. in my own development as well as others. You can't, Ignore that. And I think you can't ignore experiences. They come back to you no matter what, for whatever reason. 
I think the more we learn to accept things and maybe not judge them and just put them down to exactly what they are, they are experiences, mm. that we can learn more from that. So going back to this experience of being shaken by mm. a frustrated teacher, mm. what would you say to that teacher today? That's a very interesting question. I've not thought about it like that. I think I've thought about that situation, but I've never actually thought of how I'd put that together in words. Mm. I think I'm on a journey and I think it's a bit early in the day to say, to actually have an answer to that. Okay. That's really interesting. I just think that, you know, these things from our lives inform so much of who we become. And it, you know, that's maybe we can perhaps pick up on something later further down yeah, the line. Yeah, definitely. As you know, as you, as you are travelling on this journey. Mm. So the, the kind of frustration that um, this teacher felt, you felt was something that was repeated by other teachers throughout your secondary school career as well? Uh, yeah, there was elements of that. Yeah, mm. definitely. I think by secondary school, I had pretty much decided that I wasn't going to gain a lot for my, my education. I was very focused on being creative. Why was that? I totally understand how students become disenfranchised because if they're not, if they can't see the results, and as a young person, the future seems not just a long way away, but almost irrelevant because you're living in the here and now. Yeah. And I think that's how I was. And you feel like you've got forever. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think as you get a little bit older, you're faced with when forever comes, you know, the, the eventuality of that not being the case, mm. I think there's a sense of urgency. As you know, I'm, I'm 43 now, and I refer to it as being in my second half, you know. I've done the first half. Yeah. I've had the half time, and now I'm in the second half. And I really want to make the second half count, you know. Mm. And I don't, I don't know if that would ever resonate to a school child. I don't know if they could ever really appreciate that. Maybe if they've had circumstances in their family that have made them think about life, maybe the loss of somebody in the family, and maybe they could because they have that on their in their experience. Mm. But otherwise, I think it's very challenging for a young person to think greater than, you know, seen past Christmas or whatever, mm. you know. Mm. But the age of 14, 20 seems old. At the age of yeah. 20, 40 seems Absolutely. old. Absolutely. Yeah. And then when you get to 40... You really don't feel any different and 14 seems like only the blink of an eye away. Yeah, definitely. I mean, age is a funny thing, isn't it? I think you do become wiser. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's how I feel. I mean, you know, I can look back and I still have that creative drive, which I've always had, but now I am using it mm -hmm. in such a more constructive way. There's only so much creative thought that one can keep within their head. <laughs> without it bursting yeah out. <laughs> without going totally insane and I think I kept you know for years I kept saying I need a book that I just write these ideas down whether it just be I don't know just a thought or a, a product idea or a song or a dish or whatever it be you know um that never happened I just thought I'd start being more creative. So how, how does it happen then that somebody like yourself, who is perhaps a bit of a square peg in a round hole at school, mm. doesn't necessarily follow the systems, you know, is a very creative thinker, perhaps isn't that kind of linear student in terms of following all the rules, doing everything mm. that needs to be done, struggling with this undiagnosed dyslexia. Mm. How does that young man become a teacher? 
And at which point did you decide that you wanted to be a teacher? Yeah, so I was in kitchens, running kitchens, head chef, and I loved training people. Mm -hmm. I think that was the point. I kind of knew I was going to teach before that. My sister was a teacher. I wasn't necessarily following in her footsteps, despite the fact having a massive amount of respect for her. Mm -hmm. But I kind of knew I'd end up teaching something because I really enjoyed sharing knowledge and understanding. And I would work with really challenging people in kitchens as often, you know, we have, the industry is, is full of very, very interesting characters, okay. you know, and just amazing sort of helping those young people sort of develop, you know, and inspiring them. So you left school at 16 to start working in the catering no, industry? No, no, not exactly. No, I always wanted to be a chef mm. and be in, in hospitality. Um, my mum discouraged me from doing that. She wanted me to do art. Okay. I, I would say, because I was creative, I thought, incidentally, to almost contradict what I'd said at that point in life, I thought, well, it's got to be art then, because that's yeah. a creative out output, you know, art and design, that, that is it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And although I was quite able, it's not what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it felt awkward. I could see other people who were gifted in art, excel, and I just knew from that, well, no, at the time I didn't know. But I thought, well, why that? Why am I not doing that? And I guess it's just because it wasn't the right outlet. It wasn't the... Passion. The passion. Whereas with food and people, what I do now it is the very essence of what my understanding, what my skill set is. And I think it's like home, you know. I read somewhere, you, you touched on your mum a moment ago, that your mother was a big source of inspiration for you, and in particular, as I said in the introduction, her love of spices. Tell us a little bit about how she affected you growing up and inspired you. Yeah, so I started working with my mum at 15, 14 or 15, cooking within a catering business. She had a tea room at home. And I suppose, like, as a teenager, there was a bit of a, a feeling of paradox because there was this massive invasion of people in our home, like, you know, every summer... And in the spring... So the tea room was at home? It was, yeah, yeah. We lived up in the Moorlands in Staffordshire. What was so, it, in the house? Yeah, the so, yeah. So, yeah, the TV would go away in the summer. No way. We'd be there in another room, but, yes, yeah, so no living room, and it, the house would become a tea room. Wow. Um, and this was just seasonal every summer? Yeah, For, yeah. for tourists and visitors? Yeah, yeah. So oh, in, wow. the, in the Peak District, there was plenty of people around. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, it was a great experience. My mum's a phenomenal cook, as both my nans are. <laughs> uh, or nans were, you know. So food's always been a massive thing in our family. And I think my mum and dad, watching them struggle in their own way through the... I say that with total respect. Mm. Over the years, you know, I, uh, they are in, they're both an inspiration. My mum with the food. Dad is just a legend. You know, I love them to bits. They're Why amazing. is your dad a legend? <laughs> Why? He is... Uh, I just love sitting with him and chewing the fat, just having a conversation with him. You know, it's just a, always a joy. We could talk for hours. He's just great, as mum is. But my mum, sort of, you know, with a catering, you know, is it interesting how she she didn't want me to do that? She said, you'll have no life. Well, because of antisocial hours yeah, and yeah. sacrifices, as you saw, you saw yourself in your home from quite yeah. a young age. Yeah, absolutely. But really, if you've got that draw to something, that passion that connection, yeah. you can try and ignore it. You can try and switch it off, but it's going to be there every single day. And that's the way, you know, I mean, I, mean, I went on to study at university. I chose a design degree. 
How successful were you as a teacher then? You've obviously talked about your passion for the subject and the need for that you feel to develop skills and knowledge rather than just checkboxes covering mm. the curriculum in, in the lives of young people. Mm. How long were you a teacher? And tell us a little bit about your success as a teacher. Yeah, so classroom teacher for about four and a half years. Okay. Into, it depends how you judge success. I was at a point where I was looking actively for a promotion. Mm-hmm. I was really passionate about my subject, but also the psychology of learning and how, you know, how that looks in the classroom, but also how that looks in, you know, the eye of a teacher and how a teacher could be best equipped in the classroom. Really interested in that and still am. Mm-hmm. When we talk about education being a broken system mm-hmm. or a an outdated system mm-hmm. or an industrial system, however you want to phrase it, I think you know, food and all those creative subjects still sit within those parameters mm-hmm. within the system. I think the potential is far greater. And I think not only that, we're at a time where the way we eat food is going to change massively over the next 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in terms of the ecology of the planet, you know, affordability, mm-hmm. maybe the, you know, the much smaller consumption of meat. So I think food potentially is... Yeah, is or should or could have a much greater role. Now, you know, I'm a teacher and I'm not just a teacher of food. With any teacher, you step inside a classroom and you're a teacher of so much. Mm -hmm. I think when the value is just put on two subjects, essentially maths and English, science to to a point, but certainly maths and English, I think what I was actively involved in within my classroom was just a love of learning. Mm You know, it just so happened we'd make some food. And did that kind of myopic fascination with maths and English that I think is in the sector at the moment, did that kind of jar with your innate creativity and perhaps the approach that you have to learning? No. Right. I think largely it's about finding the gaps, exploring the the, the possibilities, the opportunities. If you take away, because those maths and English being so uh, important within formalised education is it's a context Mm -hmm. so that gives you opportunities quite often what I do is what do you mean by that Chris it's a context it's one of the considerations when you sit down to plan a lesson or a body of work or whatever that maths and English gives you opportunities as much as it gives you something to kick against so so they're the keys that open the doors almost yeah so I'd misspell something on purpose Mm -hmm. I'd also do it by accident I'm dyslexic it was Mm -hmm. a it would happen, but on my presentations, I'd, dis- I'd misspell something and the kids would point it out. Mm-hmm. I'd quite often have a list of keywords on the board and I'd just open up with, guys, tell me something that's going to be important today. Tell me, what does this what does this word mean? And it's interesting that quite often the answers can be staring people right in the face. And it's not until they understand your learning culture and that becomes embedded in what they do when they step inside your classroom that you switch on their learning to a higher level. And I think learning is quite simple, but the the ways that you engage and promote that step up the ladder in learning is so layered. And I think it's just about exploring that and enjoying that as a teacher. You know, it's, That's the thing that kind of makes the hairs on my arm stand up. <laughs> it really is. No, it really is. You know, I, I think the... 
And I, I know I've used the word profound already, but I do think that the simplicity of learning is really profound, yeah. you know. And I, I absolutely agree with what you say about context. And, mm. you know, having a background working with young people, and particularly working with young people from very, very challenging backgrounds mm. and those who'd been legally excluded from school, mm. I think the greatest light bulb moment that I ever had in my teaching career was that... I can't make kids learn, but I can make them want to learn. Mm. And as soon as I understood that, and as soon as I recognised that each young person has got a different pathway to travel on that, recognising what it is that they want to learn, it was mm. almost like, right, I was away. Yeah. You know, and it's an absolutely beautiful journey to be a part of, and it's such a privilege. And it yeah. sounds to me like you, it's, a, it's a chapter in your life that you thoroughly enjoyed. So you're not a teacher anymore, though. Well, I still see myself as... A teacher or an educationalist. Okay. Because I'm so passionate about... You can't forget that experience. But what caused you to leave the kind of formal, full-time, paid education sector? So I'd, I was ill. Okay. That was the massive thing. We'd adopted our daughter. Mm-hmm. We got a birth child, Alfie and adopted daughter, Daisy, both amazing kids. And did that happen? Did those two things happen, the birth and the yeah. adoption quite close together? Or? So Alfie's... Uh, he's 11. Daisy's four, nearly five. So when we adopted Daisy, about two weeks after, I was in hospital for quite a long period of time. Just totally out of the blue? Yeah, pretty much. There was an underlying thing that kept popping up every so often, but I've been told my doctor not to worry about it. Yeah. Like twice a year, I'd get really profound chest pain. My right. wife would say, stop, Mary, stop, 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 you know, being too dramatic. Not quite in that voice, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, so I ended up in hospital, pneumonia, both lungs, one of them collapsed, sort of really poorly, uh, pericarditis. And I'm not, I never say these things with a want for sympathy, but it is a factor. Then sort of spondylitis, my, both my arms were just dead, they were so painful, it was just ridiculous. So lots of inflammation in my body, which was my body sort of reacting to the previous sort of conditions. And then some, some really profound depression as a result of the drugs and several things, really. So, For but, somebody like you, you know, whose who's who's natural demeanour to me seems to be very upbeat, very mm. lively, you know, real thirst for life. Mm. That must have been incredibly hard. Yeah. Do you know, being ill, it's really strange because... I think I've got a very active mind. Mm -hmm. And what it did do was slow my mind down. Mm -hmm. So perversely, that was quite useful. The hard thing came for me in the rehabilitation, the frustration, the the depression. Physical rehabilitation? Uh, Both, partly, but mainly mental. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of therapy. I was clinically depressed. It was just an eye-opener. As a, res- as a result, you were clinically depressed as a result of the physical illnesses that you yeah, had. Yeah, absolutely. That took some real getting over. Mm-hmm. To be at the bottom, to feel like you literally are, to feel like you've got nothing when actually you've got everything. <laughs> you know, to feel like that, it says it all, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, when you've got so much and you think that you've got nothing, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous. I mean, I was on a lot of drugs, mainly for the um, spondylitis. So it was, that was really hard. I'm not familiar. What, tell me a little bit more about spondylitis. It's a word I've heard, but yeah, I've never... Yeah, so that's to do with the, my spine, the upper part of my spine, and what the effect it has on your nerves. 
So the pain I was getting in my arms was just numbing. I just they were just numb. They were so but so painful at the same time. And, and was that, it this condition that caused you to leave education because it just wasn't possible for you to teach anymore? Well, I think I, I went back to work. Work were great, very understanding, very supportive. I returned to work with the want, the desire to gain um, promotion. But for whatever reason, that just wasn't meant to be. My body and my mind just weren't letting me do that. I think I just needed some space. So that's, you know, that's what I eventually got. I left, left my job and start my business. That must have been an incredibly difficult decision to make. Almost, did you feel a little bit like, you know, you're obviously going from a job with a salary, you've got your marriage, you've got mm. two young children, yeah. regular income, mm. almost feeling like you're stepping into the abyss, I guess, because, you know... Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. That's one way of looking at it. I think there was also that element of, just enjoying the challenge and being alive. Mm. And that's that's really what, what drove me to, to do that. As, as somebody owning their own new business, small business, I have regularly looked at jobs pages over in the last two years <laughs> and other people who own their own businesses, small businesses who at similar sort of stage to me say the same thing and they'll say it in a way that is almost regretful. I'm like, no, embrace it because you're only going to end up thinking... I'm not going to change. I'm going to carry on with this business because it's what I love. Yeah. But it's a reminder, isn't it? You know, you look at that and you think, oh, that's what I could have. That's what I could do. But I don't want to go back to that because I've been there. I want to move forward. Let, let's go back a little bit. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your, your struggle with your, your depression. Yeah. Um, you spoke about feeling like you had nothing, mm. you know. And, and, you know, I think it's incredibly heartwarming to hear a man Mm. you know, speak in this way. And, I, you know, I think it's really welcome in society these, these days that this is something that male, male mental health is discussed now mm. far more openly than I think it ever has been before, which yeah. I think is absolutely critically important. Absolutely. I think for too long people have felt that mental health is a sign of weakness or mm. wh whatever. Mm. But tell us a little bit about how it felt and also the road to recovery. Mm. So, yeah, I think... On a daily basis, it was just for a period of time, it was that thought of just having a black cloud following me around. That black cloud, you know, it was, it didn't necessarily have to be something that had happened, but it could be something somebody could say could make things worse. Mm -hmm. People could be positive and say great things but that would be meaningless. And I think when you're in that state, it is very much that thought that nothing will change how you feel. But you know, strangely, through any time that I've had sort of with a, a battle with myself, I've always had that somewhere within me, this real sort of positive glimmer, you know, that just shines out and always drives me forward, which, is, you know, I don't know where it comes from, but it's there. And in the darkest moments, I've always thought something like taking my own life, that would never apply to me because I feel I've got so much more to offer. And I think if you focus on the things that other people value in you or, you know, are of value, things that we can, that can seem insignificant in those times, then 
there is a way forward. And most of those things, almost all of those things are based around people. You know, I think the thing I left education with was a feeling that education, despite all the wonderful things I experienced, and they were largely around people, there is a feeling, I think amongst teachers, certainly myself, that there's a lack of value of people. Mm. And that left me with this real desire to value people more in my work. And that's the thing I put at the very front of every everything I do, whether it be with a school or private clients or a community-based project. People are everything. And it's that connection with people that really drives me forward, you know, that sort of element of selflessness, you know. That's a truly wonderful thing. Um, and should be explored more. Mm. It's interesting with the, the PSHD thing, PSHE obsession in schools now. Oh, let's all be more focused around the whole person and help them develop. Well, I think all amazing teachers already do that. Mm. I think there is no burden. And often things said is, well, how are teachers going to have time to do this extra initiative? Well, the great teachers already do that. Mm. It's just it's just who they are as people. Mm. And I think, yeah, for, so for me, getting over my dark time, if you like, post being ill was really sort of helped. I mean, the therapy really helped. But also having people around me like my wife, Ellie, really helped me sort of move forward. And I think it is that thing, isn't it? Being able to see a way forward mm -hmm. is massive. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, you spoke really eloquently about the kind of the light in the darkness. And even at times, you know, the light may well have dulled. It, it never went out and you no. were able to always kind of grasp that. What do you think are the most important things that you, you learn maybe about life or about yourself from those, those times of real challenge? The one thing that I left behind with all that was a lack of self-esteem. It's something I'd carried for years, mm -hmm. partly due to with education, partly to do with other life experiences. I say education, my, my formal education as a, as a, as a pupil. Um, I think through my personal development, that time that I had been ill really helped me to leave that behind, which I never thought I could. I never really understood what low self-esteem was until I sort of looked it in the face and said, that's what's holding you back. And then... Tell us a little bit more about that low self-esteem. What we're we talking it's, about here. It's like a lack of worthiness, like feeling like you can't achieve that, you can't do this, you can't, you know, that, that you wouldn't be able or worthy of having that job or doing that thing with those people or being able to achieve certain things. So what was it about being ill that enabled you to, to free yourself of the shackles of that? So I think, I think the person that I was at the time and the shackles, if you like, the things that, that held me back, those things were part of me being ill in some ways. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it was all very connected. Mm -hmm. I think through being ill, I'd sort of looked at the greater, at a greater perspective of how I thought about myself and other people and just life in general and just started living more, started accepting things and not, not dwelling on them. I think, you know, fear is, plays a massive part in holding people back. Mm. And it's not until you look fear in the face that you can maybe ex see it as a bit of a, a challenge, if you like. And, you know, we can all find fear in 
just about most things if we look hard enough mm-hmm. or we can show it two fingers and just move on. <laughs> and I think that's what I have learned to do better. Perversely and paradoxically, if there are times when, you know, through taking risks, you experience that fear, but it's not about owning it. It's about challenging it. I think. Do, do you think getting older as well helps you to, to mm. combat the fear? Yeah, that. And I think through being older, it's self-acceptance. Mm. I have an inherent, if you like, childlike approach to things that I, instead of seeing that as as thing that may, always I thought made me not worthy, you know, you're just a big kid, you're a big daft kid. I now see that as just a, a massive benefit. Absolutely. You know, and I love it. You know, it's, mm. it's part of me and mm. it's self-acceptance. It's huge. Mm. And I know that how I operate with people, I, I see the benefit of that engagement with people on a daily basis. It's really interesting that you talk about these kind of unique character traits and and self-acceptance. I've just been reading a bit of research at the moment about the importance of these kinds of, I'll use the phrase again, character traits that people have and how how actually they can really separate people from the norm and how those things that at one point in our life we might consider them an impediment can actually prove to be one of the key ingredients to our greatest successes. I totally agree. Yeah, it's really powerful. And one of those things that actually we should embrace about ourselves, not try and hide away from. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, one of my mantras now is do things differently. Right, okay. I mean, every day I wear odd socks, right? (laughs) That's something I've done for probably, I don't know, about 18 months. And and one of the most amazing things is, right, is when people notice these odd socks. And bear in mind, I'll wear ones that are purposefully very, very different. I'm not trying to hide it. Yeah. I'll say... You've got a matching pair at home. And when I say I'll wear odd socks every day, they, we, we part that conversation, we part ways with them still believing that I just couldn't find a pair of matching socks. You see it in the faces, it's hilarious. And I love that. I absolutely love that. Sometimes those little moments in life, those little exchanges that we have with people, if you don't just stop, I'm going to quote Ferris Bueller, mm. if you don't stop and look a while, around every once in a while, life will pass you by. And that is so true. Yeah. I couldn't, could not agree with you more. Yeah. Do you know that song from Ferris Bueller, Yellow? No. Chica, chica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just that comes into my mind every time. Brilliant. But I think the notion, as you've just said, you know, of stopping every now and then and looking around mm. and appreciating mm. and giving yourself the opportunity to... I think it's for some self-forgiveness as well and some self-acceptance mm. and, you know, to appreciate what it is that we have in life, I think mm. is, is absolutely crucial. It is. This morning, I was talking to my daughter and with my daughter, Daisy, most days there'll be this moment of where she just makes me almost weep with absolute joy. But at the same time, later in that day, she'll almost make me weep with just utter despair. <laughs> Something about being a daughter, I think. I, I don't know. I'm glad it's not just me. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'd, we were talking about something and she was saying to me, she was trying to get a rise out of me, basically. She kept saying, Daddy, are you just going to try and tell me one of those silly, stupid jokes again? Anyway, I, I said to her, I looked in the eyes, I said, Daisy, in a world that is often not beautiful or, show, or, or you see elements of that challenge beauty just be beautiful and 
you know, we looked at each other. This she's four years old. We looked at each other. And I don't know if she was thinking, Daddy, that's lovely, but really, come on. Or if she was just thinking, I really get it. She looked into my eyes as if she really got it. And, you know, it was just, what a moment, you know, and she's just incredible, as both my kids are, you know. What a great lesson. Yeah. To teach a four-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just be beautiful. It's a mantra any one of us. Mm. Yeah, and I don't mean that in a... Could benefit from. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't mean that in a sort of... A stereotypical feminine way. Yeah, I don't absolutely. mean that. I, I mean it. I mean it in a, in, a, in a much greater sense. Yeah, I'd say the same thing to Alfie. Yeah, or a grown man. man. Absolutely, mm. totally. Open your you heart know. and be beautiful. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mm. definitely. Mm. I mean, and there's not enough of that in the world at the moment. There isn't, and I think you know, one thing that I do now is like years for years, I'd just go and hug ladies. Not not just out of the blue, but <laughs> you can get arrested for that. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> He's in again. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'd regularly just you know like meeting up with friends and stuff like you know sort of hug the the wife of my friend or you know whatever, and then just shake the fellas hand. Now I just throw my arms around everyone because mm. it's just a moment, isn't it? It's, mm. You just why does it make any difference? Well, life you know? is precious. Of course it is, The yeah. people in our lives are precious. Absolutely. I hug my dad every single time I see him. I'm a mum. And if he feels awkward, tough, he can get over it. You know, I don't think he does. I don't think he does at all. But, you know, it's an example into your father. Do you it, think that's changed over time? With my dad, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. 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 I mean, now... I think that generation is very different in terms of the way that they demonstrate mm. emotion. Yeah. I mean, my dad's a very affectionate person. So I don't, I don't think, you know, either of us find that difficult. With my son, he's now, he's 11, Alfie's 11. So we, I still kiss him. Yeah. Kiss him on the head, give him a hug, and he'll still sit, we'll sit on the ho- sofa sort of, you know, you know, with a big arm around him, you know, and yeah. that's amazing. I hope that yeah. never changes, I really do. Yeah. And the same with Daisy as well, you know. I think gender and how the thing, the way we should operate around people is quite interesting. I think we're all just humans just trying to get along and yeah. get through life one way or the other, you know. And I think just a gen- genuine and general affection for people surely goes a long way. It's mm. quite interesting how some people are quite suspicious of that as well, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> but I also think there's something, ooh, how, would you, how would you describe that? That there's an element of when that's genuine, it cannot be argued with. And I actually think that we all have that. I don't know whether it's a radar, I don't know what it is. You know, we, we can meet strangers and mm. straight away you can have a hug and you can mm. tell straight away if it's genuine. I think there's, there is that connection with people, isn't there? Mm. And I think we all have lots in common, much more than we think. There's that element in life where the differences always stand out mm. greater than the similarities and the the shared experiences. And we don't really have to look that hard to see that, the similarities, you know. It's essentially quite fundamental, isn't it? You know, and it's boiled down to its basic principles. At the end of the day, we're all human. Yeah. And the things that we feel, the things that we experience, the, the needs that we have transcend, I believe, culture, race, class. You know, Absolutely. they are yeah. innate within us all. And when mm. we have that genuine warmth, when we have that genuine love of people, that open-heartedness, mm. you know, I, 
I'm I'm on the same side. I'm on the same team as you are. I mm. think that should be actively mm. and openly shared. So just as we wrap up then, I'd like to just chat a little bit about your business because as we spoke about before, you've taken these kind of golden threads and they've now become intertwined so that you've now got your love of food, your love of teaching, and they're all kind of coming together in one as your new, kind, as your new business, which yeah. sounds absolutely fantastic. You speak about the importance of food and obviously you know food feeds our bodies but you also speak about how food can feed the mind and how food can feed the soul as well tell us a little bit more about that so if we eat well and we eat smart then we can be smart i think the food we eat as a can can have a massive effect on the way our brain works i think a really good example of that is i think school meals have got a long way to go Mm -hmm. i think there's things that go on in Japan that could be utilised really, really well. Such as? Well, the children make the food. In schools? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think if that was explored more in this country. Wow. It's quite interesting because, uh, you know, a little while ago I read an article about how terrible it was that some kids were cleaning the school. Now, that had happened out of financial need. But I think there's also really having respect for your environment not in an authoritarian way, but mm. just in a responsible way, mm. is is a really good life skill mm. and really good way to learn about your environment and the things that are around us, you know. And, it, and is that imparting of life skills one of the key things that you see as critical to the way that your business works at the moment when you work with young people? Yeah, I mean, like I said before about teaching, teaching isn't about just the context of the subject that you're teaching, it's, it's about everything. Mm. You can't step into a classroom and expect just to get that little tiny message over about, I don't know, how how a sauce thickens using flour. Mm. I mean, it's a much greater it's a much greater thing. You talk about everything in a classroom. Some of the things that, you know, that whole experience is is huge. Mm. So everything I do in my business now is is about that and just to link to the stuff that I do with private dining with my, my private clients is that quite often a client will come to me and say oh we've got a celebration and we want to make it personal so what we what we do is we tailor the canapes through life experience so the last one we did the last big one we did was 26 people in a marquee mm-hmm. and I did a bit of research into the into Brian's it was Brian's 80th into Brian's life experience he's had a really interesting life so, for example, one thing he'd done, he'd been a merchant sailor. So we did a little gin-cured salmon as a canopy. Little nods and winks to things in his life. He'd mm. run a, a car company. So we, we made a little reduced consomme, like an oil slick. <laughs> you know? So we're just having fun with context. And also real meaning as well. Yeah. These, they were presented in little gift boxes with pictures of wor- well, words associated to his life and pictures of things he'd done and uh, Mark who was our client essentially because we'd liaised with him to plan the event he'd given us a scroll of Brian's life so that was like attached to the top with a bow I mean what a beautiful way to start mm. a special mm. meal mm. and for everyone to share in those memories mm. of that guy's life you know mm. and that's what we do we connect with people fantastic yeah it's amazing I love it <laughs> and really tying in with your ability to and your skill to be creative and childlike actually yeah because you're having fun and playing and yeah absolutely yeah I think the thing sometimes I don't appreciate is I see myself as just not 
just, but you know, my key things has been education and teaching. But actually, when you pull apart those events, there's a lot more that we've done in, within them. There are incredible experiences, not just for those dining, but for myself and people that that helped me out in those events. And my advice to those those people who helped me out are just be yourself. Mm. The hard work's done. We are part of that event. That's why they've chosen our our company because they don't want that awkwardness between caterers and people dining mm. for whatever occasion. Mm. We're very much part of it. and we. So, so you don't see yourself as simply providing a service? It's more than that? Yeah, because we've had it through the planning process. We've engaged in that connection. They get a sense that the, the value that, not value in terms of money as such, but value in terms of the product that they're getting from us is about people. Mm. We've done the research, we've asked the questions, we want to provide something that's, that is not just about memories, but also creates memories. And I'd, what I'd also say is that we're, we're just a, a part of that. The food isn't everything. When you sit around a table, things happen. When you discuss those things, thing, you know, things happen. And I think in that moment, to provide the food as part of that occasion, it's incredible, you know. And I really relish and enjoy those moments, whether that be education or those dining experiences, you know. I think some people's opinion of what I do when I talk to them is they, they see that as the, the private dining as being the, the real cream on the cake, if you like, the icing on the cake. But I just see what I do as servicing different people's needs in different ways. I don't hold anything in greater value or greater esteem. I think everything, all those things we do have value because what we do is rooted in in real quality, which interestingly at the minute we're going through a rebrand. So we've mm. been in business nearly two years. I say we because I see the business now greater than myself. I think, uh, you know, and, and that's within my plan to de- develop and employ other people and to educate people within the business. We've got some uh, fantastic projects coming up. But the rebrand is born out of that idea of connecting with the clients and the people that we're engaged with. I suppose when I started off, I didn't know who these people were. And I know I now know their wants and needs. And most interestingly, everything has been in one part. So Feast with Friends is everything in one part, education and dining experiences. Now what the future is going to bring with the business is that it's going to be two separate things. So mm-hmm. there's going to be Feast with Friends, which is the dining, mm-hmm. and Feast Ed, which is going to be the education side. So Fantastic. I now understand through that experience that the wants and needs of education and the wants and needs of people in dining, it's saying it now, it sounds so blinking obvious, but really the language and the way things look within those things, even though the quality and the content is very similar in many ways, they are very, very different. So yeah, that's, that's from October, two separate businesses. Fantastic. So yeah, exciting times. I, I was reading on your website about some of the work that you do with young people and how you use food as a, a medium to access the wider curriculum. You know, and as a parent, I, I just thought it's absolutely fantastic. You know, you you spoke about some of the classes that you deliver where you explore ancient civilizations such as the Mayan Empire, the, you know, the Egyptians, the Romans, and how you can adventure into outer space, stepping back in time, via, visiting prehistoric cavemen. Tell us a little bit about how that resonates with young people. Yeah, so a lot of those examples are from the primary curriculum. Now, primary schools 
have something amazing within their curriculum. And that is based on the broader learning. And it's still there, despite all the things thrown at uh, primary sector, well, education in general, that, you know, learning is very narrow. Their curriculum time based on topics is a lot it's where we tend to step in. Mm-hmm. It might be the introduction of a new topic. It could be to contribute to it. And that's what we tend to do when we go into schools. And it tends to be over a term or something like that, working with each year group. So working with a, a great school down in South Stafford, Flashleys, next year, they got me in at the end of last term to go and work with the teachers to prepare. And that was so fruitful, having that extra time brilliant i'd highly recommend that any school leader invest in that for key stage one we put together a project which is called space isn't rubbish and it's all about the message or should i say the message behind that is that we need to think more about the waste that we create and within that time they're going to explore waste and how we recycle they're going to explore technology and making products and how a product looks they're going to also make a product that gives them... A food-based product. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, something that I do in schools called a what noodle, which is a homemade form of that well-known, savoury, uh, <laughs> cardboard-like snack. Um, so this is vibrant, fresh and interesting, giving them lots of context. But rooted all around those practical activities is a solid foundation of of those fundamentals of education of real value. Wow. And that's what we tend to do in primary school. Sounds incredible. It is. I'd, the feed, I say it is, I put a lot into it and the feedback is always, is incredible. Mm. So, I also imagine you get a lot out of it. Well, my, yeah, I, I always say if they've, if the kids have enjoyed it half as much as I have, they've had a good time. <laughs> um, and, that is how I generally roll. It's it's you know done with en- energy, excitement, zest, and and engagement. And through that, I mean, people, people, can people really fail to not enjoy it? I think you know you you have to try really hard not to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Sounds incredible. It does sound incredible. Okay, just a few, couple of final questions I wanted to ask you, for, particularly for the benefit of our listeners. What do you think is the single greatest challenge that you have overcome in your life? Self-acceptance. Okay. That's massive. And you achieved that. How I achieved that? Mm. I've achieved that through being ill. It's that that led me to to challenge that. Mm. To go, this is the person you are. You can't change that. Mm. Celebrate the wonderful things. The rest doesn't matter. It's really interesting that you say that because the number of podcast guests that I've that I've met with already, particularly those who have been through some kind of physical trauma or illness, mm. have all said the same thing in that whilst it was incredibly distressing at the time, they would not change that for the world because of the value that it brought to their life. Yeah. It's so bizarre to sit here now and say that. But it's true, you know. Mm. It's not until you have those moments, and those moments could be a moment of real happiness, such as the birth of of a child, you know. Mm. I jokingly say, generally to females, that rather probably badly informed and stupid, stupidly, that childbirth is one of the most hardest things I've ever been through. (laughs) It was so distressing (laughs) and painful. (laughs) And that was just for me, you know. Um, 
Oops. But uh, but that said, yeah. So those moments can come from beautiful moments. Mm. They can come from things like you know having a, a, a child. Mm. They can come from a more challenging moment like illness or the mm. loss of somebody. Mm. I think generally speaking, when you're against adversity or in a beautiful moment, it's isolated. You know, they can be quite significant in their own right. But if you explore them in positive ways, they can be the springboard for amazing things. And that's certainly how I feel with the illness that I've experienced. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And finally, if you had three pieces of advice to share with our listeners, Mm. what would those three things be? You are creative. Yeah. Embrace people and challenge fear. That's what I'd say. That's great. Chris, it really has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege talking to you today. I have thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being one of my very first podcast guests been great being live here on location in Buxton and I'm sure no doubt we've got some very very interesting and challenging noises going on in the background <laughs> as they're developing the beautiful Crescent yeah. soon to be spa which I believe is opening in about six months time for uh, listeners to find out a little bit more about you where can they get hold of you yeah so thank you Holly for inviting me I really really enjoyed it and yeah it's been challenge aren't it with the noises but that's <laughs> again it's one of these things you've got to this come. is live absolutely yes yeah, so they can find me or at Feast with Friends, one at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. That is the email. I was just thinking through that because I'm going through a rebrand, there's going to be a couple of new websites. So I'm not going to share that yet. Hopefully, I can share that at a later date and yep. we can attach that. Well, we can it. put that in the show notes at the bottom Fantastic. here. So everyone can have a look Brilliant. down below where they, yeah. they uh, download their podcast. But yeah, on Facebook at Feast with Friends. Fabulous. Great. Thank you. Chris Cohen, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Ollie. Chris's story, whilst likely different in context, is probably achingly familiar to those of us who still struggle with accepting and liking who we are as individuals. Many of us live not knowing who we really are, and we get confused by the fact that we're almost a collection of different people, all in one body. The truth is, the majority of us still struggle with self-esteem and often get embroiled in the dark loneliness of self-doubt. The irony is that we believe we're the only ones who feel this way. Not true, my friends. We're all caught in the same internal battle. As Chris says, people are everything. Connecting with others is one of the brightest lights that can shine in the darkness. You don't have to be alone in your struggle. Reach out to those around you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast and that in some way it's added value to your life. Thank you for joining me. I've been your host, Holly Hartley. Please make sure that you tell everyone you know who might benefit from listening all about the Life Stories podcast. It's free to listen to, of course, in any app that supports podcasts. Make sure that you click like and leave a review. I'll see you, you incredible person, on the next edition of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast, where we'll explore midlife career change. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. You are enough. <laughs>